Another of those classic James Bond tracks, uh, Shirley Bassey and Goldfinger. One of the better ones you've inflicted on me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Richard? I'm fine. Good morning to Daniel Mumby, joining us for the movie hour. Yep, afraid so. You've got me for another hour talking about nothing but films. Right, and um, what's our cult classic this week? Blue Velvet by David Lynch. That's not a bad uh, rendition of it, actually. Well, we'll, we'll play the proper version by Bob and Vint in uh, about 20 minutes' time. So, uh, yeah. Right. But, uh, thank yes. you. I'll take that as a compliment. Yes. And um, before I forget, which I will, um, 18th of April, and I'll work out what day that is in a moment, um, we have got, um, um, oh, what's the ballet film called? Black Swan. Black Swan. I was going to make this so seamless, it's going to be on at the Annick Playhouse. Oh, good. So, uh, yeah, which you quite enjoyed. So. I really like it. I mean, yeah. it is, you know, completely insane and a bit yeah. ripe, but it's, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it already, it's worth checking out. But, you know, don't go in expecting just a film about ballet, because that's not what it's yeah. about. Annick 510785, if you want to book tickets What time's the screening? Uh, I imagine it'll be 7.30. All right. But we will find out for you in the next uh, break that we've got. We'll go... Googling it for you and find out. Other websites are available. Yes, not quite indeed. As good. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Uh, shall we um, have a look at the top ten? Why uh, not? A few new entries this week as well. Unsurprisingly. Um, uh, number ten, down one, The Lincoln Lawyer. Well, it's on its way out. I mean, it's Matthew Mahogany's best work in quite a long time, but it is essentially a TV film. Right. Another one that looks as if it's on its way down is a Nuvahood. Yeah. Have got that right? Yeah, it's another, but I don't... Another. But, uh, no, I'm not in a massive position to correct you. It's rubbish, and I'm glad that it's on its way out. I mean, gangster films are very difficult to do as comedies, um, unless you're kind of sending up the conventions of it, like, I suppose, The Lady Killers or The Brinks Job, that sort of thing. But this is just sort of... It's attempting to do Guy Ritchie with jokes, and it doesn't work. Right. Um, one rather better, I guess, at number eight is Unknown. Well, it's okay. I mean, it's not a great thriller by any means, although I, although I do like Liam Neeson. I think that he he needs to do something a little bit more upmarket, and if you want a really good thriller about the area of sort of people disappearing and not sure whether uh, you remember things correctly or not, my advice is go and get the original version of The Lady Vanishes on DVD. That's right. a very good Hitchcock film from the 30s. Right. A couple of animated ones then. Um, Rango at number seven. Which is fine. Golfobinski's best film. Um, I just hope it doesn't lead to him unleashing a new terror on the world when he t returns to live action. But it's okay, and I'm glad that a film has done that well by not being in 3D. Right. Number six, A Turtle's Tale. And the problem with this is that it's not Finding Nemo. I mean, I think I said last week, I think Finding Nemo is the best Pixar effort to date, because I'm not the biggest fan of The Incredibles or Ratatouille and that sort of thing. I think the problem with A Turtle's Tale is that it's far too close in its story and its characters to sort of get away with them. I and it's not terrible, but it's just a little bit too obviously derivative. Right. Number five, the film I still haven't managed to get to oh see, dear. but I, uh, I, I will keep on trying, is The Eagle. It's Which been I, one of those weeks. Yes. How's your wife's cough? Uh, it's still there, actually. <laughs> right. Um, I like the film. I think Kevin MacDonald's a very interesting director. I also like Jamie Bell. I'm not so keen on Channing Tatum, but I think his performance is a lot better than some of the critics have sort of inferred. Uh, the story's interesting. The battle sequences are, are gripping. I mean, obviously, it's not Gladiator, but it's really good fun. And it's sort of locally based. It is, yes. Sort of. Yes. Um, new entry, and number four, is Sucker Punch. Which is hideous. 
Um, it's, no, as we said last week, kind of adolescent chauvinist fanboy tribe. It doesn't have any kind of story. I mean, it is essentially a two-hour-long music video designed solely to showcase those costumes. There was um, a column which somebody had written comparing Zack Snyder to Joel Schumacher and arguing that this was his Batman and Robin, and, and that's a point of view that I entirely sympathise with. Right. Um, the sort of the Twilight Zone type one is at number three, Limitless. Yeah, yeah it, is it is essentially an extended Twilight Zone episode with bits of early Darren Aronofsky in their somewhere, but Robert De Niro's pretty good and I like Anna Friel. You know, it's sort of passable, trashy, multiplex fare. Nothing yeah. wrong with it, but no, nothing massively to recommend it. Right, new entry at number two. I think we previewed this last week, we didn't did. we? <laughs> Can I remember a week? Uh, source Code. Which is great. Duncan Jones is the new Ridley Scott. It's a really smart science fiction film which has visual spectacle and good special effects, but it is rooted in ideas. It's certainly the smartest film in the cinema at the moment. And it's good to see Jake Gyllenhaal returning to sci-fi because he made his name... Um, as an actor with Donnie Darko 11 years ago, and I think there is something about him that does sort of troubled, fractured protagonists in the way that when he sort of tried to branch out into sort of indie drama or, uh, in the case of Prince and Persia, action-adventure, he hasn't quite nailed it quite so well, but it, the film's really great. Great. And uh, another animation in at number one, straight in. Which is? Hop. And it's rubbish. I mean, I don't find Russell Brand funny. It's you no, know, essentially a reworking of Alvin and the Chipmunks with little bits of the Grinch. I mean, like I say, it's it's just incredibly unimaginative. Right. And like, like I say, I don't think Russell Brand's funny. Apparently, the the remake of Arthur has come out in the United States first, and it has been savaged. Oh, interesting. Yes. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Yes. So three animations in the top ten this week. Yeah, I mean, it's we're coming up to the Easter holidays, of I course. I guess we so, are, uh, yes. So I'm, I dare say those will be sticking around for a few more weeks as, you know, the school yeah. kids can flock in. Out of the stuff in the top ten, obviously go and see Source Code and uh, The Eagle, I suppose, is the other recommendation. Great. Okay, so some interesting ones, some not so good ones, and some rubbish. Part of the course, Richard. Yes, I guess it is. You yes. should know this by we're, now. We're getting used to it now. Yes. yes, yes. You'll have a proper person to talk to next week. <laughs> oh, don't believe this. <laughs> this is the fresh sound for the district. Live from, from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Right, cult film is this week uh, going to be Blue Velvet. Yes. Um, 1986 psychological thriller directed by David Lynch, who, for my money, is America's greatest living director. How familiar are you with, with David Lynch? I mean, he's sort of a name that everyone sort of recognises, but have you seen many of his films? Uh, I probably have if you mention them. Um, well, his most f commercially successful one would probably be The Elephant Man. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. But also, you know, Razorhead, Mulholland Drive. Uh, yeah. He also did the Twin Peaks TV series, you know, very interesting American director. A uh, bit of background, he started out in, to kind of understand how he got to make Blue Velvet, you sort of have to look at the first three films that he made. So he started out with A Razorhead in 77, which was this really strange, terrific horror film which took about six years to make because he had no money at all. And it was this sort of post-industrial nightmare, a film about you no know, father's underlying fear of children with this strange mutated baby, underscored with these, with these kind of scenes of bold, audacious surrealism with that um, strange moment of the woman coming out of the radiator and singing, In heaven, everything is fine, which is really creepy. I mean, I can't do justice to it because you have to see it. Then he made The Elephant Man, which was the sort of biopic of Joseph or John Merrick, produced anonymously by Mel Brooks, because they thought if they put Mel Brooks' name on it, everyone would think it was a comedy, and that was... A film in the same way as Tim Burton's Ed Wood, which sort of took the conventions of the biopic, which have been sort of run into the ground and sort of did in something interesting with them. Then he famously came unstuck with Dune, which was the adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel, which had been in development hell for the best part of 20 years.
years. Famously, Ridley Scott was going to be doing it, but then he dropped out to direct Blade Runner. So, <laughs> lucky us. Lynch sort of came on board with no real sort of interest in either the book or science fiction, and as a result, it was a complete mess. I mean, it had some good performances in it, including, if you watch very closely, a very young Patrick Stewart, well, relatively young, but it did sort of feel like a Star Wars cash-in, and of course, if you are familiar with Lynch's career, around the same time, he was offered the chance to direct Return of the Jedi, and George Lucas kind of yeah. took him up to his ranch, and um, Lynch was asked why he didn't, uh, and he said, the longer I spent in George Lucas, the worse my headache got. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, the important thing about the last point is that David Lynch's contract for June stipulated that if he did this kind of romping science fiction blockbuster, which cost something like $40 million, which in the 80s was, well, quite, a, money, yeah. was a, quite a lot, um, he could make another film when, on which he had final cut, despite, although, no, within that he could only have a budget of $6 million, but it guaranteed him distribution. Yeah. And that leads us on to Blue Velvet, which is the, in many ways, the defining Lynch film, because it sets the template for his film for his TV work in Twin Peaks and for his later uh, masterpiece Mulholland Drive. It's the whole idea of, you know, a, a town or a community which is sort of beautiful and picturesque on the surface, but there is deep horror right just underneath the surface. So I'll give you a plot summary and then we'll play the, um, the song by Bobby Vinton which uh, gives the film its title. A Carl McLaughlin, who was Paul Atreides in Dune, which I think was his first film role. He plays a character called Jeffrey Beaumont, who is a young, good-looking student. He's returned home to his town, hometown of Lumberton after his father has had a stroke. You know, he's bright, he's friendly, and he's romantically involved with a girl called Sandy. She's the daughter of a local detective played by Laura Dern, whom most people would know from Jurassic Park. You know, yeah, she's the yeah, no, right. in the first film before Julianne Moore sort of takes over. Um, so everything's fine until one day he finds a severed ear in a field somewhere near his home and he takes it to the detective and Sandy, who's the detective's daughter, tells him about the case involving this and about how the police are spying on this mysterious woman called Dorothy Valens who may or may not be involved. And Jeffrey begins sort of following Valens to the point at which he hides in her flat and so begins a dark descent into a criminal underworld involving sadomasochism and a psychopath called Frank Booth played by the chilling Dennis Hopper. So just like every average small town, really. Yes, quite And it's just like this. <laughs> so at this point, to give you a, a sort of flavour of the tone of the film, we'll play you the track which sort of, which is featured in the film, although it's overdubbed by the actress Isabella Rossellini, and it sort of, it does pretty much set the tone. And it's a classic. Great song, Bobby Vinson and Blue Velvet. And amazingly, because we're looking it up in uh, our book of um, information on such things. Your book of information. Yes. Um, which it turns out may be wrong. It got to be a hit in September 1990 in the UK. I guess it must have done something in the US many years before. It may. Got picked up here it may well have later be, on. It may well have been um, re released. Of course, if, if um, you're familiar. Do you know the Chris Isaac song, uh, Wicked Game? Yes. That yeah. became a hit solely because of the fact that it was used in David Lynch's subsequent film wild at heart before that it had sort of been you know trickling around on radio yeah. and so forth so it is probably a re-release but it is a very good song yeah um so let's be clear what we're dealing with with blue velvet i mean it's an 18 certificate film so we know we're going to get a certain amount of full-on stuff and if you read the bbfc report it talks about strong frequent strong language sexual violence nudity graphic horror so pretty much everything you get past the senses in 1986 it's also a film which was 
detested by a number of critics on release. Famously, Roger Ebert wrote a one-star review of it in when it first came out, although he's since sort of revised his opinion slightly upwards, saying, you know, his basic problem was that you had these sort of very sort of dark, horrific scenes of people being abused and, you know, people taking drugs and so forth, yeah. intercut with sort of parodies of, like, uh, 1950s Americana, and he couldn't sort of uh, reconcile the two. In my opinion, though, there's sort of been enough time passed to let the dust settle and reveal Blue Velvet for what it always has been, and that is a masterpiece. I mean, for my money, it is second only to Blade Runner as the best film of the 1980s. Now, I realise, having you know, set it up like that, that it's not going to be for everyone. I understand entirely that if someone says to you, do you want to sit down and watch two hours of women being beaten up and Dennis Hopper taking drugs, it's, it's not the most attractive prospect. not quite Mary Poppins. No, it isn't Mary Poppins, although I like Mary Poppins a lot. <laughs> and, and there is, you no. Know, have you seen... Um, the scary Mary Poppins trailer on YouTube, where someone has recut Mary Poppins to make it look like a horror film. No, I that's haven't. very good. And they, they have the sort of the cupboards closing by themselves and Mary Poppins' head spinning around. Oh, it's, I'm going to have to go look. You at are that. going to. It's yes. very. It is really good. Um, so it's very. Looking at the film now, it's very hard to believe that June and Blue Velvet were kind of helmed by the same guy, let alone within two years, because. Although the problems with June weren't entirely David Lynch's fault, in any of its cuts, including one in which it's listed as Alan Smithy and when it was still legal to sort of, you know, take your name off that sort of thing, it is completely directionless. I mean, there are moments in June of pure Lynch, like when Baron Harkonnen, you know, Sting's dad in the film, starts randomly flying through the air and all this black liquid starts spewing out. I mean, that is a sort of, sort of Lynch symbolism in the sense you go, what on earth is going on yeah but that's in the midst of sort of other scenes which are sort of set pieces and don't really make sense blue velvet on the other hand it's this really mesmerizing frightening film which is sort of part murder mystery part erotic thriller part social satire and part full-blooded horror film I and mean, you do need to be in the right frame of mind to watch it but once you're in the zone with it you'll be hooked to the screen i mean it's the the same sort of, of feeling you get when lynch really gets it right which is I've got no idea what's going on, and yet I don't care because I'm just going with it. <laughs> I mean, so let's talk about the visuals of it first because I think that's the thing that will sort of draw people in. Um, it's shot by Frederick Elms, and when they were making the film, he said that Lynch wanted to sort of experiment with la with shooting in only natural light, so, so trying to make scenes like, you know, Dorothy's flat and the corridors and even sort of the sun-drenched avenues look as sort of dark and murky as possible. And there's a, there's a wonderful sequence on the staircase when uh, Karma Clocklin is going up this, uh, this fire escape heading towards the floor where Dorothy's flat is to sort of confront Frank Booth. And it's mm -hmm. sort of shot in a very prominent film noir style where you see him coming in and out of shadow with changing expression and it's really sort of tense and uneasy. Um, there's a comparison in that with... Um, have you seen Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon? Yes. yes. Um, well done, because it's over three hours long. But the thing about that was that Kubrick specifically developed uh, whole new lenses so that he could shoot the interior scenes only in candlelight to make the yeah. actors look incredibly pale. I mean, Barry Lyndon is a fantastic film. It's very clever. It's yeah. very long, but it is a very good film. And... There is also another Kubrick comparison in the sense that the opening section in particular is quite like the opening of The Shining, albeit with the exposition cuts out. You know, the opening of The Shining, when they go, when um, Scatman Crothers goes on about all this sort of the Indian burial ground and that sort yeah. of thing. It's very much like Lynch kind of took the setup of the Overlook Hotel, shifted it to Middle of America, <laughs> and just cut the exposition out. So, I yeah. mean, th there is a whole section of Blue Velvet which does, over, which is Kubrickian. Yeah. And, um, and it is that whole sort of thing of, um, bright old buildings of people who sort of smile a little bit too much, which, which sort of links back to the Stepford Wives in its yeah. own way, which is, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, broadly speaking, we, we, when um, I sort of set up the film, you kind of said, no, all, all towns are like this. All towns have kind of horror underneath it. Blue Velvet is classified in there's this sort of loose connection of films which are known as behind the picket fence films which are this series of films i suppose that started in the early 60s with um, the film version of who's afraid of virginia wolf which basically their thesis is there's the sort of american dream on the surface but once you start to dig underneath there is madness and there is horror and there is just there is hypocrisy essentially i mean subsequently after this you've got things like american beauty the sam mendes film yeah. um far from heaven by todd haynes which sort of reworks the 50s melodramas of douglas Sirk to tell a similar story and sam mendes revolutionary road but blue velvet is better than all of those because it because it's rooted in the surreal because it's rooted in the use of sort of the strange offbeat use of music and the use of dream imagery it has that fantastical backdrop to stop it simply stepping into a lecture about, you know, the American way is bad, because, which in a way Virginia Woolf has dated quite badly because it does fall into basically showing how evil the middle classes are, but it doesn't sort of give anything else. Summed up by the opening camera shot, which sees Lynch's camera sort of, it starts off with a look of a suburban lawn, and you think, oh, it's, you know, beautifully sort of manicured, it's been mown, and then the camera sort of moves further and further down until you get right to the base of the grass where there are cockroaches biting each other's heads off. And it is a very interesting way of conveying that image. Yeah. It looks great on the surface, but underneath, get away. Were you going to say something? Sorry? No, no, you... I'll yeah. come back there. Yes, I just, no, I don't want to make this show as entirely 20 minutes of you talking and just nodding politely. Um... The central idea of Blue Velvet, in terms of what it's idea, it is a film about voyeurism. It uses the crime thriller aspect as a metaphor for individuals' desire to sort of dig deeper and discover what lies beneath, even if, or perhaps because, they know they're going to get hurt in the process. There's a, a wonderful line where, where Laura Dern's character says just before... Um, just before Karma Clocken breaks into the apartment, I don't know whether you're a detective or a pervert. <laughs> and it sort of implies that they're more or less connected. And there are sort of very prominent Oedipal undercurrents of the film in the sense that, you know, you know the story of Oedipus, presumably, you know, yeah. the guy who killed his father so he could yes. marry his mother. Yeah. Which, in a way, runs through Hamlet as well. And so you have this sort of... The Jeffrey as the Oedipus character with yeah. Dorothy Valens as his mother and Frank Booth as the father, although and although he does end up know doing in the father it's not specifically for the reasons that follow the oedipus myth so it does slightly depart as will become clear um i think the kind of the exploration of voyeurism and the way that it sort of puts you very much in the perspective of the characters might help to explain why the film got so reviled when it was first released i mean there is there is a whole debate in horror in general about if you depict violence very graphically and realistically, does that mean that you're condoning or glorifying? And I don't know where you stand on that, as someone who isn't perhaps as familiar with horror films as me. Um, I think there is a bit of glorifying, isn't there? Well, well um, in what way? Um, Not necessarily with Blue Velvet, but just uh, in general. Is it? Um, I mean, it puts forward, in the name of entertainment, something that, outside of the cinema, that most people would abhor and shrink back from and it's uh trying to get my words right here but uh it's all right, it does i guess i'm uh, i'm going to end up by saying i'm somebody who prefers happy films <laughs> so that's where you're going wrong you see <laughs> <laughs> um and it is that sort of i guess that discomfort that you're sitting there watching something that you know outs you know walk outside the building you revile and you sort of despise and and you, you sort of somehow attracted into watching it so there yes it's uh i see what you're saying i mean yeah. i i think that there is a 
I don't think that all kind of horror violence, whether it's actual gore or just tension, is designed purely for entertainment. And in many yeah. ways, horror films are quite a masochistic experience because you are putting yourself through the mill. Yeah. For, you know, you're paying six pounds to be scared out of your skin, hopefully. Yes. And I think in the case of Blue Velvet, although there are many films which do unnecessarily glorify violence to the point at which it does become gratuitous, with Blue Velvet, if you're feeling uncomfortable, it's probably working, but because the whole idea, when, when you see the scenes of Jeffrey Beaumont kind of hiding in Isabella Rossellini's apartment with the sort of the light cascading through the cupboard doors in that, you know, another yeah. sort of film while lighting, and you see what Dennis Hopper is doing to her, it is that sort of sense of, I am really repulsed with this, but I also want to know what's going on. So it, there, is a, there is a technique in cinema called, to link back to Kubrick called Kubrick's Mirror, which is where a filmmaker will offer you an image which will produce one kind of reaction and then he'll flip he or she will flip it on its head to actually show something that's wrong with the audience and the classic example is Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut Eyes Wide Shut you know the long scenes in the or of the orgy in Summerton Manor when you kind of see a lot of nudity on the screen and you think okay lots of nudity there I'm meant to be turned on by this yeah. but then it turns out that the film is actually about jealousy yes. rather than about yeah. getting laid yeah. and it's a way of sort of exposing if you're reading into this that you should be titillated, actually you're completely obsessed with sex and, you know, sort <laughs> yeah. yourself out. And in the same way, I mean, Blue Velvet could have been just a straightforward erotic thriller which did just look at, you no know, Jeffrey falling in love with this woman and, you no know, the jealousy between him and Frank. But it does turn the voyeurism on its head by showing... It doesn't glorify because it does end up showing how horrendous it is and, you know, the consequences that happen to Jeffrey as a result of this one small decision of, am I going to spy on this woman or not? And in yeah. the end, he lives to regret it. There's, there was a, another argument about the film at the time, which was that for all its sort of, for its shocking values, there was very, it was very difficult to identify with because there were no, in inverted commas, shades of grey in the sense that you had sort of, on the one hand, these very sort of idealised heroic figures in the shape of Sandy and her family who are the detectives. On the other hand, Dennis Hopper's gang, one of whom incidentally is played by Brad DeRiff, who is Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, and he's very, oh, yeah. he's very yeah. difficult to spot, but he's in there somewhere. And if you've seen June, of course, when he's played um, uh, Mendad Pider with those yeah. incredible comedy eyebrows, much easier to spot. Um, but in the, in the way, I think that's the point of the, the film is making in some way, apart from its sort of thesis around voyeurism, is that in the end, everyone on screen is guilty, either because of the actual crimes that they're committing in the case of Frank or or they're guilty because they've sort of tried to sweep all of this under the carpet and pretend that it isn't there. I mean the detectives for all that they're sort of for all Sandy's desire to help Jeffrey Beaumont, they're sort of pretending up to a point that it isn't happening and they you know they know Frank's out there but they want to keep it, him away from the center of town and that sort of thing. So there is a whole idea about suppression of something is also a form of, you know, well not sin but of blame so to speak yeah. and in the end it's all the characters with the exception of sandy end up becoming sort of corrupted by their desires and it's a case of are you going to be driven mad by it in the case of dennis hopper or are you going to find some way to redeem yourself i mean it is an oddly moral film in the sense that after the first half of Carl mclaughlin sliding into this abyss and getting into the world of you no know, sadomasochism and drug abuse not that he personally yeah. does any of those but he's aware of it and yeah. has first-hand experience of it he realizes that in order to deal with his own guilt and shame he has to actually right the wrong and go and stop frank and sandy in this case becomes the symbol of his salvation so that he's forced to make a choice between isabella rossellini playing dorothy valens who is you know, this creature who is passionate and can satisfy him sexually but is also incredibly dangerous and deranged and on the other hand sandy who is the sort of 
the embodiment of innocence and the embodiment yeah. of all that is good. And there is a sort of there is a sort of reference to Hitchcock in that because if you're familiar with Hitchcock's films, he always cast blondes as his leading females because he thought they were easier to trust than brunettes. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a Hitchcock film, um, not a very good one, but a, an interesting one from technical point of view called The Paradine Case, which is where Gregory Peck plays a lawyer who falls in love with his client, played by Alida Valley, and his wife is a blonde, whereas the yeah. client is a brunette. So it sort of fits in with that. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting speech in the middle of the film which sort of conveys that idea, which has become known as the Robin speech, where uh, Sandy and um, Jeffrey are sitting in a car before all the spying stuff has started happening, and she says that she's had a dream about the night that, um, the night that she met him. Um, the whole world was dark, and then thousands and thousands of Robins flew into a room Aww. and sort of bringing love. Yeah, and the point about that is, if you kind of read that as, if you sort of take it as a complete sort of corny piss take of melodrama, then it does sort of feel... Well, what was that about? But the, as you kind of, as the film sort of unrolls and you realise what it's all about, that actually you're like, oh, it's, that's what it's about. That's yeah. the way out. That's yeah. the kind of, and of course the end, the film ends not to give it away with a shot of a robin with a piece of cherry blossom in its mouth. So it is the whole idea of um, Karl McLaughlin kind of going through this baptism of fire, kind of finding this dark side yeah. of life that he didn't know about, which sort of links back in a way to Into the Night, although that's a much, that's a much lighter effort. And then sort of turning it around and realising, actually, I have to protect the one that I really love rather than just giving in to base pleasure. And in the end, everything will be all right, although the ending is still slightly open-ended. So you were kind of gearing up to say something again, I think. No, no, carry on. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start running this up. I mean, in terms of the performances, I mean, I like Karma Clockton a lot. I mean, he has been called the younger incarnation of David Lynch, and he does sort of... I mean, Lynch has sort of confirmed this himself, although if you try and interview Lynch about what his films mean, he will just say, well, that's in the mind of a viewer, or something like <laughs> that. Um, I mean, he does... Sort of, he has that kind of wonderful way of carrying himself where he has the sort of the quiff and the sharp suits yeah. and he drinks coffee. I mean, this character is essentially the foundation of his agent Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks. And it is the same sort of idea of a detective, albeit an amateur one in this case, who is out of his depth, going into a world that he doesn't understand, and sort of finding horrors that he couldn't have dreamt of. I mean, that's sort of a riff on The Wicker Man, yes. albeit with no less paganism involved. <laughs> I also think Laura Dern is great. I mean, she, she's a very interesting actress in terms of her career choices because she's somebody who can sort of, she can straddle the mainstream in the sense that she can do sort of box office success like Jurassic Park. And out of, yeah. the, th out of the three women roles in the Jurassic Park series, I think she's probably the best, although I do like Julianne Moore quite a lot. Because she's had this sort of weird physical presence where she's sort of very tall and very lanky, but she can also be sort of very fiery and passionate. If you've seen Wild at Heart, in which she plays a sort of southern dame who falls in love with Nicholas, Nicholas Clage as an Elvis Yeah, I did see that one. Very good, That's yes. a really full-on yeah. performance in which, you know, no, no, you got me harder than Virginia Asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, but that's a very full-on film. But for me, the, the thing that dominates the film in terms of the performances is Dennis Hopper. And I think there's no getting away from it. He completely steals the show as Frank Booth. And it was... It was interesting because he came to this project after a long hiatus. You now, he'd sort of started out in the late 60s with Easy Rider and then the yep. last movie. But after that, he'd sort of failed to get work and he'd slipped into drug abuse and alcohol abuse and so forth. And then Lynch handed him the script and he allegedly rang Lynch and said, David, I have to do this. I am Frank Booth. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, he didn't... Yeah, and there was a... 
the story do you remember the scene in blue velvet um with um him breathing in the gas mask i have to admit this is not a film i've seen so right. you're uh, you might that's why i've not been saying right. too much this okay. week well, you learning remember, about it okay well there is a there is a sequence in it when uh, we first meet frank where he's kind of sitting in the flat with uh, dorothy valens they're about to have sex and he takes this sort of this gas canister out of the corner of his jacket and starts breathing in a mask and he steadily becomes more frenzied and you know, it's implied that he's taking a drug. Yeah. Now when they first filmed it, the original script had him breathing in helium so that he would just sort of go, oh yes, I want to do this, that sort of thing. Obviously we have to edit it because there's lots of yes. F words in the yeah. performance. Um, but then Hopper came to Lynch and said, well, wouldn't it be better if we sort of substituted it for nitrous oxide or amyl nitrate, something that would actually drive him crazy. And no, I mean Hopper's a very passionate screen presence anyway because he has that sort of thousand yard stare. I mean, if you've yeah. seen him in Waterworld or Speed when he's playing textbook villains, he does that very well. But once he's put the mask on, you want to run a million miles because <laughs> he is going to kill you. So to sum up, I mean, like I say, I know that this film isn't for everyone because it is full on, it is violent, it is very difficult to sit through if you're not. I mean, certainly if you're not familiar with Lynch you're better off probably starting with something like The Elephant Man, because The Elephant Man, although there are very sort of prominent surrealist elements to it, it is quite easy to follow as a biopic. It's, it's certainly the most accessible yeah, film. So I, I enjoyed made. that film. It yes. is a very yeah. good film. I, I really love that, and I think John Hurt is great. But I think that this is Lynch's, you know, second of three masterpieces, the others being Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive. It's a completely mesmerising film, and it deserves to be seen by anyone who has either the heart or the stomach for it. Yes. So, yeah, it's a masterpiece. Go and see it. Yeah, right. Okay, we'll take a little break and then have a look at some of the new releases. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Yes, indeed, and with me in the studio today, Daniel Mumby, looking at films. I uh, should say we're going our separate ways next week. Not uh, permanently, though. No, just, just, just for one week, because I'm off to Harrogate next Saturday for the, for the uh, garden show, which I shall uh, enjoy seeing. So, Paul Young, for one week only, yes. is coming back out of retirement. Yeah, he'll be um, hosting the show with me next week. It'll be at the usual time, and we'll be rounding off our uh, look at the Mad Max series with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Right. And then the week after, don't tune in on the Saturday, because we're here on Good Friday, a day early. Yeah, uh, because of the um, Steve Marriott, is it? Yes, the indeed. Steve Marriott special on Saturday yes. throughout Lionheart Radio, so we'll yeah. be looking on Good Friday at the long Good Friday. And that will be on between 1 and three in, one and 2 in the afternoon. We can stay for two hours if you want. <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. I have a feeling Carl Steinson will be banging on the door saying, get out of there, get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 1 and 2 on uh, Good Friday, and right. next week is normal. Great. Good. Um, let's have a look at uh, the films coming up. Um, shall we start with The Roommate? Right, uh, let's get the worst one of the week out of the way then. It's the latest dumb so-called horror Hollywood film. The only kind of interesting thing about it is it's filmed by a Danish director who sort of has a realist capability. Uh, the story is Minka Kelly, who's a sort of unknown actress. She plays a freshman or fresh woman at college. She's given a roommate who's played by a Leighton Meester who sort of starts off being really, really nice and ends up being so nice that we begin to think she's obsessed with her and then people start ending up dead. Here's the thing. Have you seen a film called Single White Female? 
Uh, no, I don't think I have. Early 90s sort of upmarket B-movie with uh, Bridget Fonda and Jennifer Jason Lee about, you know, Bridget Fonda places an advert in the paper saying, single white female Sikhs, same. Jennifer Jason Lee turns out they get on really well, but then Jennifer Jason Lee starts sort of dressing like her and talking like her. There's the famous sequence which is sort of picked up by horror fans where Jennifer Jason Lee comes out of the hairdressers to meet her flatmate with the exact mm, same scary. haircut. Yes. I mean, it's sort of, it's no, it's, it's trying to be fatal attraction and it's not quite fatal attraction but it is a very sort of interesting b-movie so imagine that film but with sort of grimier sleazier visuals a lot worse acting and sort of horror cliches thrown in i mean if you've seen the trailer for it there is a sort of john carpenter feel to the score although it's obviously sub john carpenter there's loads of scenes of kind of women randomly screaming and there is even a shower scene in which someone gets killed <sighs> and no, I mean, it was fine when they were doing Psycho, but after yes, the 1980s, yes. that stuff has got rather too old, and if you don't... You'll never replace Psycho. No, I mean, have you seen the horrible remake of it from the 90s? I haven't, no. no don't. No. Vince, Wa Vince Vaughn is a lot of things, but he's not Norman Bates. I'm sorry, it's just not how it's worked. This film is notable for only one nasty moment, which is in the trailer, which involves... Uh, a, I'm not going to say exactly what it involves, but it involves a belly button ring. Huh. And because it's in a trailer, you don't need to see the rest of the film, because it's rubbish. Right, okay. Let's um, just get the bad one out of the yes. way to start off. One that the title sounds like life would be brilliant or rubbish, Mars Needs Moms. Um, more drifting towards the latter, I'm afraid, although it's not totally rubbish. It's the new 3D motion capture film from uh, Disney, which is executive produced by Robert Zemeckis, directed by Simon Wells, who is the great-grandson of H.G. Wells, and he helmed um, the remake of The Time Machine, which was sort of mm, not as good as the original, and also made The Prince of Egypt with uh, Val Kilmer in. Yeah. Uh, so the story is there is a nine-year-old boy called Milo, body by Seth Green, voiced by Seth Dusky, because, of course, it's motion capture. Uh, he lives at home with his mum. They argue about loads of stuff, including him not eating his broccoli, because if he doesn't eat his broccoli, he's not allowed to watch TV. The next thing you know, his mother has been kidnapped by Martians. As, and, as you are. Yes, as happens all the time. And uh, is taken off to Mars to help raise Martian children, but he manages to stow away on the ship, he meets a whole bunch of characters, and he basically has to get his mum back and try and get home. Um, the film is notable for the fact that there is a new story surrounding it. It costs something like $150 million to make, and I'm not sure whether or not that includes... Well, yeah, I mean, it's still, compared to Tangled, that's quite low still, because Tangled costs 260 Still, it's going to sell well for the holidays, Well, this isn't is it? the thing. In the US, in its opening weekend, it took, well, guess how much? You're, you're suggesting it's going to be a pretty small number, I guess. Seven million. Ooh. And, and bear in mind, of course, the $150 million budget doesn't necessarily include all the publicity. Yeah. So it, ha it is being read into by journalists as sort of the death of 3D and the kind of the comeuppance of Robert Zemeckis. And although I don't think either of those are true, it isn't a very good film. I mean, 3D is by and large unnecessary. I mean... Yeah, I was going to ask, did it need 3D? No, it didn't. I mean... Have you seen Robert Zemeckis' recent works like The Polar Express, when he's been using motion capture a lot? Yes, yeah. What did you think of The Polar Express? That was a nice film, yeah. Did you, thi did you think it was a bit eerie in places, though? The way that they were sort of animating the faces and the eyes in particular? Um, yeah, I guess it probably was. I mean, yeah. it's sort of a bit of an odd technology, isn't it? But, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like Zemeckis as a director. I mean, he's often sort of written off as someone who is sort of interested in the mechanics of film but can't do characters. But I think, you know, if you look at Back to the Future or Roger or Who Framed Roger Rabbit, that's yeah. completely untrue. Um, but, I mean, when he started off with this sort of 3D performance or motion capture with the Polar Express, for all the things that were slightly too creepy about it in the set, no, it was, it's what's known in the industry as dead eye syndrome because you can't motion yeah. capture people's eye movements and you had to sort of add them in. 
there was a sort of novelty to it, but after doing Beowulf, which was you know, sort of okay, and then the remake of A Christmas Carol, um, which I found a bit sort of cold and a bit too sort of inappropriately dark because it had scenes of people's tongues falling out and the carriage from Sleepy Hollow and that sort of thing, which isn't really PG material. It's sort of like, it feels like a technology that's sort of run its course, at least as far as his approach goes. Apparently his next project is going to be a sequel to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is something to worry about, to be honest, because I don't know... I honestly don't know. So, the film itself, I mean... could be interesting. I mean, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was one of the great films of, what, the late 80s? Yeah, it? I, re and, I uh, really like Roger yes. Rabbit, but the point about Roger Rabbit is that loving it. Yeah, I mean, it, but the point about that was that it was sort of... It was at the time when live action and animation were very difficult yeah. to integrate. And it, and it was, was new and it was different. Yeah, yeah, it is, but I'm just worried that if there's a sequel, well, first of all, what story would they tell? But also, ha wouldn't it... If it's all CGI, then that there's less sort of charm because you can put human beings in CGI on a laptop these days. So, but in terms of Marsden's Mums, it's it's not very good. I mean, it's not terrible. There are little sort of set piece pieces that look good in 3D, but it'll be sort of in one ear and out the other. So there's going to be some very upset uh, studio executives over there. Isn't well, yeah, I mean, I don't. Lots. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of that flack is going to go to Zemeckis himself. I mean, obviously, it's yeah. not his film that he's directing, and. Uh, but it, it might be one of those films that finds a following on DVD, but I'm not sure, to be honest. It's mm. certainly not going to take, I don't know, $150 million in Britain. Well, we shall be watching that one as the charts come out over the next, uh, I guess it's one for the school holidays, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, my guess yes. is it'll do okay for a couple of weeks, but right. uh, I seek to be proven right. Uh, Rio next? Uh, another 3D animation, this time from the uh, director, from the makers of Ice Age, directed by, uh, Carlos Sandana, who made the latter two Ice Age films. Have you seen the Ice Age series? No. Right. Um, you're not missing a huge amount. Um, so the story is Jesse Eisenberg, who is, uh, most famous now for being in The Social Network, yeah. he's really great in The Social Network, uh, he plays a character called Blue, who is a prized Spix McCaw who lives in America and has never learned to fly, and is uh, completely domesticated and bookish. One day his keepers, who live in Minnesota, find out that there is another Spix McCaw of his breed uh, in Brazil, who's, who's voiced by Anne Hathaway, so they have to fly him out there that they can sort of breed them and uh, carry on the species, but on the way he gets captured by a load of bird thieves, he meets up with other birds, and, you know, he has to overcome his fear of flying to win her heart and so forth. Again, it's, it's sort of perfectly innocuous kids' animation. I mean, a, like the Ice Age series, it is completely modular in the sense that it does consist in the end of a load of bits which could sort of work in any order. Yeah. And again, I don't think the 3D is necessary, particularly when you read stuff about how the 3D works technically. With uh, if, you, if you've got a very sort of bright image like Rio is, because there are sorts of lots of bright colours and samba music and so forth, if you show it in 3D, then the kind of the natural shading of the glasses means that it becomes a bit sort of a dill, sort of, not a dill image, a dull image, yeah. not the sort of image with herbs on it. Um, so, but on the plus side, I mean, I like Jesse Eisenberg. He's sort of on a roll since The Social Network, and no, the animation itself is decent, so, you know, as Easter holiday fair, as, you know, sort of in one ear and out the other, it's okay. Some of this um, CGI becoming a bit too clever for its own good. In what way? Um, I mean, it's, I, mean I, I love the old Walt Disney uh, animations from the you know, 70s and I guess the 80s, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah, technically... Yeah, for their day, probably very advanced, but look at what's available these days, it would look very pedestrian. Um, but somehow there was, I don't know, a bit more love and passion in it, and just feels... I mean, I'll tell you an example, I guess, was Shrek, which, I mean, it's a very clever film, but for me, visually, it wasn't that exciting. Um, well, and I wonder if, you know, old classic um, Walt Disney animation would have done a better job of it. I think, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I think, I mean, in the case of Shrek, I think the first one was really good because it was, 
they were sort of pushing the boundaries of what you could do in terms of sort of mapping and so forth, you know, mapping a sort yeah. of image onto a 3D skeleton. The interesting thing about the early Disney animations, I think right up until the 70s or 80s, was that when they did, for instance, in Snow White, where you have the elaborate dance sequence with the dwarves, that's done yeah. with rotoscoping, where they would actually film children in the costumes and then sort of animate them over the top. And there is, there is something about hand-drawn animation which is sort of personal and physical, because you can't just kind of click a button and says copy and paste 10,000 yeah. times. I think in the case of CGI, there is a, the biggest danger with any kind of technology is that you sort of do it for its own sake, and there isn't a desire with CGI to sort of it stops having a kind of natural physicality and a weight in the sense that, you know, you've, you've seen hundreds of films with yeah. bad special effects like the CGI wave in Die Another Day, which is, yeah. you know, it exists because we can do it rather than because it's any good. So I understand your concern. In the case of this, though, I mean, it's okay. It's, it's just a bit sort of, you know, passingly forgettable. Right. Okay. Tomorrow when the war began. Um, we'll do this one very quickly because there's not much to say. It's an Australian action-adventure film based upon the novel of the same name, which is apparently the first in a series of seven. Directed by Stuart Beatty, who previously has some fame as a screenwriter, I think he co-wrote uh, Collateral, the Michael Mann film with Tom Cruise in. Have you seen yeah. that? Yes. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, it is very good. I mean, I like Michael Mann quite a lot. Um, so the story is there's a bunch of, America of Australian teenagers, rather, who become engaged in a guerrilla warfare after their sort of outback town is invaded by a nondescript foreign power. And it's a sort of very jobbing, run-of-the-mill, 12A action film with you know, some decent special effects. I mean, the story apparently is quite faithful to the novel, but it's nothing remarkable. I mean, there's been a lot written, I suppose, about the racial undercurrents about it, you know, it, as a sort of allegory for imperialism, but I think that's reading slightly too much into it. It'll probably satisfy its target audience in the sense that 12-year-olds will sort of bond with the characters and they'll enjoy the action set pieces. But again, it's not going to be one they're going to remember for very long afterwards. Right. So, yeah, again, these, I mean, a lot of these are sort of pre-Easter holiday stuff, and, you know, if you have to go to the cinema, then uh, they're fine, but uh, there's plenty of other stuff in the top ten which is more interesting. And your film of the week is The Silent House. Yes. Um, you are in its original language known as La Casa Muda, which will become relevant once I've set it up. It's a Uruguayan horror film which is in the process of being remade into English, despite the fact that it was only made something like three months ago, so Hollywood moves fast. It is billed as being the first horror film to be filmed in one continuous shot. It's about 77, 78 minutes long and it's no, there's no obvious cuts, although that this has been disputed in some areas. That must have taken some doing. Yes, I mean, uh, the, the story, so I will come on to the sort of the cinematic precedence of it in a second. So the story is based on a real-life unsolved crime which happened in the 1940s. You have uh, a young girl and her father who go to stay in a remote house in the countryside. Everything's fine until she hears sort of loud noises upstairs. Her father says, okay, I'll go up and check so long as you're asleep when I come back down, and bad stuff happens. Um, like I said, there isn't a lot of precedent for this. I mean, in terms of you know, the idea of shooting in one long shot, the two, the two things that come to mind, there's a film called Russian Ark, which came out in 2002, which was set in the Winter Palace, or the Hermitage as it is now in St. Petersburg, which was sort of one, you know, sort of a POV shot of one person wandering through a party, which sort of went yeah. on for two and a half hours, and it did sort of drag after a while. Also, of course, um, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, which famously isn't in one take. That was a film in which he experimented why he would have a film canister that could hold ten minutes worth of film, and then he would sort of shoot for ten minutes continuously like he was filming a play, and then when he ran out of film, they'd sort of pan behind someone's back, or there'd be a very quick sort of fade to black yeah. so that they could yeah. sort of fit the next one in. And it does very much look like a film which is done in one take, although that's technically impossible. 
Also, there is precedent within the horror genre because it is a haunted house story, which hints back to, you know, the haunting, of course, and yeah. both versions of the haunting and the shining. Also, even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because it, because it is about sort of innocent people stumbling upon a strange house in the middle of nowhere yeah. in which bad stuff is happening. But I think the film is worth seeing because it is technically interesting. I mean, it is very logistically difficult to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Slightly um, odd because it must take very, very hard to set up and then one day filming done, thanks, goodbye. Yes, I mean, in the case of Russian Ark, when they were filming that, they because they needed to film in the Hermitage, which of course is now an art museum, yeah. they, they could only use the museum for one day, so they had to get it right first time. Yeah. And in the case of this, I mean, it's, it's like, have you seen The Passenger? The Michelangelo Antonioni film. Oh, yes, yeah. In it. You yes. know the famous eight-minute sequence at the end of that where it is one long shot which yes. goes through the bars of the window? Yeah. And the way that they did that was that you had, you know, the camera sort of going along um, a rail on a ceiling and then it would go onto a crane and then it was yeah. sort of... And Michelangelo Antonioni was kind of directing this from a van just shouting, OK, you come in now and you know, wait for it, wait for it. Now you into shot just, yeah. you know, because you can't coordinate that stuff by moving around in front of the yeah. camera. And so, as a way of doing that sort of thing technically and logistically, it is a very good thing. I mean, it's, it's also because it's purported to be filmed on something which resembles a camera phone, although it's much better quality than a camera phone. It, it, you know, it's sort of, it's an interesting take on the found footage wave, which sort of, I mean, it's not Blair Witch Project, obviously, which in itself was yeah. sort of a rip-off of Cannibal Holocaust. But, you know, it's admirable and decent, and there are a couple of pretty good scares in it. I mean, you don't have to necessarily be a horror fan to get it, because the ghost story end of horror is much more accessible than the sort of, the kind of Hellraiser gore-fest end. I mean, Hellraiser is a very interesting film, but it's very full-on. So, although it's a horror film, and although it's in the Spanish language, it is the film of the week, because it's the most interesting out there, both technically and narratively. And when does the English version hit? My guess is it'll be either later this year or early in 2012. Great. Well, thanks very much. It's been good talking to you as ever. Yep. So it's you and Paul next week. Yeah, me and Paul Young talking about Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome yes. with the, the effervescent Tina Turner. And then we'll be back in just under two weeks. Yeah. And Paul will be starting at nine o'clock, uh, no doubt talking a little bit about football in the first hour, as he does. <laughs> yeah, and then, I might uh, allow him, but yes, I'll be <laughs> on from ten as usual. Danny will be in between uh, ten and eleven. So, just a quick reminder today, because I got it wrong a little earlier on in the programme, Anicktown are playing at St James's Park. That kicks off at 2.30 this afternoon. Cramlington Town in the Premier Division of the Northern Alliance. Anik, of course, in second place. So uh, good luck to them indeed. Right, taking us to the news, some local music from We Steal Flyers. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.